Good morning. How's everyone doing? It's like the most awkward question to ask from the front, because nobody's going like, to give you an honest answer from the front, but I hope you're doing well. Um, I'm excited to get to spend some time with you this morning. Uh, my name is Andrew, Pastor Andrew. I am the children's and youth pastor here. Many of you may not actually know me very well, um, which is a new thing, because I, even though I was the children's and youth pastor before, I spent a lot of my time down here in the services. But recently, we've had a lot of changes upstairs, good, exciting changes about things that are going on with the kids' program. So I've been up there for both services, being a part of that transition and those changes. But I'm excited for more opportunities to come down here again. Honestly, it just felt really good to be a part of adult worship. Like, kids' worship is really good, and I'm excited for them. But, <laughs> like, getting to just be with Jesus and in this, obviously I can do that throughout the week. I have four young children. We just had our fourth child. Um, so even, even that, like my time is, you know, it's pretty well spent in various things. So just getting to be down here with you guys this morning and be with Jesus was really nice. Um, so I'm excited for our time here together in this as well. Um, this morning is going to be very different than a normal Sunday morning. I'm going to tell you why. Because my style of preaching is to sit here, I'm animated, um, but I like to, to sit and teach this way. So your necks are gonna get a little bit of a rest from tracking back and forth all across the front. Pastor Mike, our lead pastor, he's in Israel right now and he likes to walk while he preaches. So um, we are starting a new series, so I get to introduce it. The series is called Life Hacks. We're gonna be looking at the book of James. Um, do you guys know what hacks are? It's kind of a popular term. It has to do with anything that can make your life more enjoyable, more effective, more efficient, make a task just a little bit easier. Does anyone have, like, give me, like, the five-second version. Like, for example, I love looking up fruit hacks, how to cut fruit. I think it's amazing, especially pomegranates. If you cut it in half, this isn't the five-second version, so you'll give me the five-second. I'm giving you a little longer one. You cut it in half, and um, you put half over a bowl, and you take a spoon, and you just pound on it and spin it around while you do it, and all the seeds just fall right out. It's amazing. You do it for a couple minutes, and you pull out just a few of the little pieces. So much easier. I love pomegranates, and now I can actually enjoy them. So do any of you guys have just like a, I love this hack kind of a thing? What was that? You can use baking soda for so many things. That is an amazing example of a hack. Any other examples? Yes, great example. How to fold a fitted sheet. That can be so tricky. So here's a couple more. I haven't tried this one yet, but um, Band-Aids. Have you ever tried to put one on your finger and it has that awkward little like crown tip at the end that just keeps bumping everything? So if you, I meant to bring a Band-Aid this morning, but if you have your Band-Aid and you cut, snip, this side and snip that side so you have like four little flaps on the ends. And then when you wrap it, you make an X out of the flaps. All of a sudden, it makes a nice little wrap around your finger and you don't have that crown at the end. That's an amazing hack, right? Um, TED Talks, has anyone watched the TED Talks? That really is just a bunch of hacks about ways to think differently, ways to process life differently, just little changes we can make to learn what's effective, what's efficient, what works, what's productive, what, what leads to life. So the book of James is full of these nuggets for life, and those are our hacks in our series, Life Hacks. So Pastor Mike is really, really good. He's talented at providing the historical context for books, and you've probably noticed that if you've been here for some of his messages. So I'm not going to try today to go into very much depth on that, because since Mike's really great at that, I'm going to let him do that next week when he's back. Um, but I'm going to give you a brief just snapshot of the book of James before we go into what specifically we're talking about this morning. Um, James was likely the Lord's brother, Jesus' brother. I always forget this. When I think about the book of James, I think of James and John, the sons of thunder, who were disciples of Jesus. And then every once in a while, I remember, oh yeah, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And here's why that's so amazing. This person grew up with God. Now, I don't know about you. Would, 
I don't think I would like to believe that my brother is God. He'd always be right. Like, you just, you could never win with him. It would be frustrating, right? So James actually didn't believe Jesus at first. Um, Many of his siblings didn't believe that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. But here's what's amazing. He died. He rose from the dead. He shows up to James. James transitions, and he now believes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So James is someone who might have some pretty powerful things to say because he grew up with this man and he believes that he rose from the dead and that he's the living God. We know that James was a pillar in the early church. Paul says he was one of the pillars, one of the key leaders. There's another place in Acts where we see this council at Jerusalem. It was a gathering of some of those key leaders, and James is actually the one who's kind of facilitating that council. So James is really important. What was going on when James wrote this letter? Um, Stephen likely was just recently martyred. Stephen is the first person we have an example of after Jesus in the New Testament who was killed for their faith in Jesus. He was likely martyred, and as a result of that, there was a lot of persecution among the early church Christians, particularly the Jews, because they had, in the eyes of their fellow Jews, were changing their belief to now believe that Jesus is the Messiah they've waited for, where many of the Jews didn't believe that. So they're heavily persecuted, and so they're fleeing all over the place as the result of this. So here's James. He's like their pastor. He's writing them to say, when you endure persecution, in the midst of these hardships, here are some life hacks that I have for you. Here are some spiritual hacks. Here's some wisdom for your everyday life to help you through that process. So we're going to jump right in. Um, We are starting with a life hack for trials. Doesn't that sound like fun? Wouldn't you like a hack for how to do trials? Okay, we're going to read James 1, 1 through 4. Here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, let me read that one little part in there one more time. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Does anyone else find it ironic, the juxtaposition of pure joy, consider it pure joy, and trials of many kinds? Raise your hand if you associate hardship, suffering, difficulty with pure joy. Raise your hand if that's you. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, we don't think that. It sounds crazy to think that. Who says, man, I really want some trials today? Or, yeah, I'm going to struggle today. That sounds great, right? We don't say that. Would you even want to say that? Like, do you feel like you'd want to say that about trials? It doesn't seem intuitive that we would want to say that. But James tells us that we should rejoice in our trials. So here's my question. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe? Do you trust him? If he says this, that that's probably a good thing that would change your life in a good way. And if he tells us to do it, that probably we're capable of doing it as well. I think most of us would say, yeah, I probably do agree with that. But here's the thing. Our normative attitude in trials probably doesn't look like joy, right? Normally, we get frustrated. We get disgruntled. That's a good word. I like the word disgruntled. We get irritated. We get angry, right? Would you agree, like, normatively speaking, when there's really hard things going on, we tend to get frustrated? So here's my question. If our attitude is one of frustration in trials normally, what do you think are some of the behaviors that might spring from an attitude of frustration? I'm going to be a little interactive. There's some times where you guys are going to have to respond and answer some things. So if your attitude is frustration, what are some behaviors you might expect to see in that place? Impatience, okay. And what might that look like? 
Okay. Angry driving. Maybe you might snap at some of those people every once in a while, right? Maybe you might complain, oh, this is so annoying. I, can't. I was playing Settlers of Catan with my wife last night. I had been studying for this preparing, and I just needed a chance to kind of debrief, not debrief, but just kind of unwind at the end of the day, so we decided to play a game. She demolished me. It was not fun at all. Like, literally, um, it's this game where you're trying to build things. I only could build one thing the entire game, and it was the very first move where the free cards I got at the beginning. Other than that, I wasn't able to build one more thing the entire game, and she built tons of stuff. And so I was like, all the while it was going, I was trying really hard not to complain because this is what I'm talking about. But it was, like, funny how bad she was beating me. And so I was like, Allie, I'm not complaining, but this is miserable, and this is horrible. So we like complain or maybe whining or moping. That's pretty normative, right? So if our attitude is frustration and leads to those behaviors, and James tells us that we should consider it joy and rejoice in trials, our question is, how do we change that attitude, right? Like that's our hack. How do we change our attitude as we approach trials? So we're gonna talk about theology, or not theology, we're gonna talk about psychology for a second. Is anyone interested in psychology? The way the mind works, processing that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm interested in all of those studies. Sociology is one of my favorites. It's amazing. Um, but psychology is what we're gonna start with. There's a theory called the theory of reasoned action, and it has to do with how behavior springs. What, what are the reasons behind behavior leads, that leads to those actions? So here's the first premise. Behavior is determined by our, any guesses? Yes, perfect, great. We talked about if we have an attitude of frustration, it leads to some very specific behaviors we might see. Here's the second layer of that. Our attitudes are determined by our, any guesses? Yes, beliefs, which are often influenced by our experiences. They create our worldview, a system of beliefs and thinking about the world. So the way we think about things affects what our attitude is like, and then our attitude, whether we feel good about something or feel negatively toward that, has a large part in determining what type of actions come as a result of that. So the foundation of that whole process is Beliefs, right? Our thinking is super critical. So if we want to talk about how to change our behavior in trials and our attitude in trials, then the thing we need to address is our, our beliefs, our thinking. What is it in our thinking that we need to change so that we can move from a place of frustration and irritation and disgruntledness in hard things to one of passion and hope and expectation and courage and rejoicing and all of those things. What thinking do we need to change? If you know me at all on any level, you would know that one of my favorite topics is identity. I love to talk about identity. And what I mean by identity is simply Max is laughing. He's in my youth group and so he knows that we talk about that all the time. Identity is simply who you are and how you live out who you are. One of my convictions is that this whole way we process struggles in life largely springs from our thinking about our identity, our thinking about who we are and how we process living out that identity. What's the main question? We talk about humanity. What's the first big overarching question everyone talks about? Who am I? Who am I? Why am I here? All that thing. But it starts with who am I and how do I live that out? So I'm going to show you how these verses actually point to attention and our thinking about our identity that's the key, that's our hack for how we process trials and rejoice in them. But before I show you that in the verse, I have to tell you about one of my favorite teachers. His name is Graham Cook. Um, he has many amazing things to say. Um, and he talks about how God relates to our identity. He says that for us as people, 
we tend to be fairly past present. We're past present in a lot of our processing. I'll explain that in a second. Whereas God tends to be future present in his thinking and the way he relates to our identity. So when we process our identity, we tend to focus on our past, things we've already done, mistakes we've made, patterns in our life, and then we, we focus on that and we tether ourselves to that identity. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of who we are throughout our lives because we become tethered to our past because we focus on it. But that is not at all what God is like. He looks at us. He looks into your future. He looks into the potential inside of you. He sees who you are in that potential, and he relates to you today, now, as if that's true about you. And in doing that, he starts pulling you toward your potential. So no longer are we tethered or stuck in our past because God starts relating to the potential that he sees inside of us. And when we start thinking with him there and agreeing with him there, all of a sudden, we get unlocked from being tethered to our past and a whole new way of processing life and our identity and our future opens up. So the question is, in these verses, what does God see in our future? We're going to look at verse 4 specifically. I'm just going to read it again. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God sees a version of you that is mature, that's complete, that's not lacking anything. That word for complete means perfect. Um, I don't have time to expound on what that would mean to say there's a perfect version of you in the computer, the point, or in the for, <laughs> computer, in the future, but the point is God says he sees inside of you a version of you that is mature, complete, full fruition, not lacking anything. If I told you that I had something that wasn't lacking anything, this thing I have for you, it's going to change your life, it's not lacking anything at all. On a scale of 1 to 10, what would you assume the aptitude of that thing would be? It's not lacking anything. It's like a 1, probably. It's not very good, right? It's not lacking anything. It's like a 1. Maybe it's a 5. It's like, okay, but it's not lacking anything, but it's like a 5 on the aptitude scale, right? No. If it's not lacking anything, it's a 10. Its aptitude is incredible. I'm not talking about like a Swiss Army knife where it has all the little gadgets and gadgets that don't really work or do very good. Most of them, they're kind of lame. Like that, it's not lacking anything, but it's lacking everything. This is mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is the aptitude that God sees inside of you. That's the process trials are working out inside of us. So God thinks we're people of really high aptitude. What would that look like? What would a fully mature, not lacking anything version of you look like? I'm going to give you some verses that say some things about that. In the book of Revelation, there are several blessings that are given to those who overcome, to the overcomers. They're given the right to eat from the tree of life. They're given the crown of life. They're not hurt by the second death. They receive the hidden manna. There's a white stone with a new name on it for them. They're given authority over the nations. Their name is acknowledged before the Father. They are a pillar in God's temple. They sit with Jesus on his throne. These are the blessings that God speaks over us who he calls his overcomers. That word overcome, the primary meaning of that is conquer or to have victory. It doesn't mean just to make it overcome. It means to come standing up on top of that thing with authority and power and in wholeness. It's the same word used for the idea of how Jesus 
overcame death. He conquered it as he rose. That is the aptitude that God sees inside of you. Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors. John 5 says that our victory, our victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. This is the victory, our faith that overcomes the world. Galatians 4 says we're not slaves any longer, but we're sons and daughters with rights and we're heirs. We share in the inheritance of his kingdom with God. We are heirs, co-owners with him. That's fascinating. Second Timothy says that we are co-rulers with Christ. Have you guys heard of a puppet monarch? It's like a king sweeps in, has dominion and control, and then he like leaves or sets up a different puppet monarch so it looks like they have some authority, but really the king has authority. Do you think that's like what God's talking about? We're like puppet monarchs who co-rule with Jesus. Like really we don't have any authority. We're not overcomers. No, that would be absurd. That's not what God is like. He sees you as a ruler. That is amazing. This is a very victorious, strong, capable picture of you. That is really high aptitude. There's a tension though. So we have this aptitude problem. We've already, we've established that our thinking about ourselves determines a lot of things. So how we think about ourselves affects a lot. God thinks, he looks into our future, he sees this mature, completed, not lacking anything version of ourselves, right? But we have a problem and I'm calling it our aptitude problem. Here's my question for you about that. How can we even begin to view ourselves as these overcomers who are victorious in circumstances when we don't even know how to believe that we are even simply in control of ourselves? If I don't even know how to believe that ultimately I'm in control of me, how can I be an overcomer and victorious in the circumstances around me? In the church, our church, other churches, lots of churches, it tends to be pretty common to talk about ourselves as we're weak, we're prone to failure, we're needy, we're, we're in our core, in our core, we're incompetent. Like in our core, we're not capable. Really, we're at the mercy of sin. Just thanks be to God that in his gracious mercy, like just thanks be to him because I couldn't do anything. And so just thanks be, Jesus did amazing things. He conquered death and I was trapped without him. But because he broke out and made a way, he sees the aptitude inside of me to follow him and step out of that and stand in victorious life. I'm not small and powerless in God's eyes. We theologize and glorify that mindset of neediness and lack, and we call it humility, all the while ignoring that God says he sees us as lacking nothing. So, some might say, but maybe to lack nothing just means like we depend on him. Like I lack nothing because he has everything. And so when I learn to just let go of everything, then I don't lack anything. And I could see how someone might say that, but is that maturity? When you think about your children, your baby, I just had a baby. They don't lack anything right now because I provide it. But is that maturity? That's not the picture that God sees of you. That's not what he's talking about. He sees a powerful, whole, not lacking anything, victorious overcomer inside of you. And that is amazing. I said that we tend to theologize that mindset of neediness and lack sometimes. Worship music is a really good place to look for that. Um, and worship songs are all over the theological spectrum. Jeff and Kim will know this for sure. Like when you're picking songs, you have to be intentional because they're all over the theological spectrum. And even in one service, we might have songs that 
go over that spectrum. We did one today called Oh Come to the Altar, and it starts with this idea of, are you broken inside? I love that song. So I'm not saying that there's never a place. Like, there's brokenness inside of me. I'm not perfected yet. Like, I'm not complete, not lacking anything yet. So I acknowledge that. But sometimes in worship, we glorify that. We focus on it so much, we come back to the same song, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. I could never, ever possibly know what you gave up on the cross. My mind, I'm lacking in my mind the wisdom to possibly know that. Um, what's another example? Um, rid me of myself. Like, rid me, I just want to get rid of myself because I'm not, there's nothing good inside of me or I'm lacking. We can theologize and glorify this mindset of lack and focus on it. Now, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever acknowledge those things in worship, but that should not be our main focus. When it is, I wonder sometimes if we're more worshiping our lack and sin's bigness than we are actually worshiping the God who says that we're incredible overcomers who lack nothing. That's a really important point. Like, that's one you should think about and come back to. We read Romans 7 in the Bible, and Romans 7 is the chapter that talks about how um, I'm a wretched man. I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. I'm trapped. There's these laws of sin, and there's this sinful nature inside of me. It's not even me who does it anymore. It's just at work in me. What a wretch am I in this place? We read Romans 7, and so we say, obviously, I'm not in control of myself. Paul wasn't in control of himself. I'm not in control of myself. But we stop there. That's not the end of the book. Praise be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. The law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. Now we think maybe I'm still a slave to sin. Maybe it's still bigger than me, but he just kind of sets me free from the consequences. Like he excuses the consequences. I'm going to be trapped by sin for my whole life, but he excuses the consequences. That's not what this is talking about. When you study the word namas, that means law, it, it's not talking about a law like, if you do this, this I'm going to slap this punishment on you as a result of that. It's talking about an established standard, like the laws of nature and the laws of gravity. These things are in control. They're established. It's an established power. The established power of sin and death that is at work in my life that I am bound to. But praise be to God, because the law, the rule of the spirit of life breaks the grip of sin and death over me so that I can come out from underneath that and begin to become the powerful, free overcomer that God has created me to be. Praise be to God. And I'm really thankful for Romans 8 as well. If we continue to believe that sin is bigger than us, then we clearly lack something. And that's not the picture that God sees of us. I often wonder how many times we struggle so much simply because we don't realize that we're these capable, in control of ourselves overcomers. So we're talking about having an attitude adjustment. We want to rejoice in trials. But I think what we really need is an aptitude adjustment. We need to start thinking about ourselves differently. The aptitude adjustment is what will ultimately give us an attitude adjustment. So I'm going to tell you about Allie and my aptitude adjustment process. So uh, have any of you ever been or are currently married? Raise your hand if, if you've experienced that. So there's this whole concept of two becoming one, right? And that's true in so many different ways. Before you're married, you kind of live in your own head a lot, and you have your own thoughts and your ways of doing things. All of a sudden, you get married, and in decision-making, you have two mindsets that come to the table. So Allie and I got married, and we thought we knew each other super, super, super well. And we did know each other very well. But all of a sudden, we realized we don't think the same about everything. 
And we have to figure out how to work together to come to one mindset, more or less, in processing things. And that doesn't mean we feel the same about everything all the time, but somehow we have to bring that together to figure out how we're going to proceed together, right? So we affectionately call this process of our aptitude adjustment as we got married how we started dealing with our victim mentality or our victim mindset. That's what we've come to dub this as. Um, there's lots of other ways our mindsets had to be changed, but this is like the one that we realized God was working on hardcore in our lives and that we challenged in one another dealing with our victim mindsets. So I need to give you some background. I'm going to start by talking about Allie's. She just walked out the door, so now it seems like I'm talking about her because she just left. Um, I'm going to tell you about her victim mindset first because it's not mine, so it's easier to talk about hers. Um, no, that's not true. Actually, mine, mine is a little bit harsher when I get to mine than, than hers is. Um, but I need to give you some background on me. My father is sitting here in the third row back. Um, his name's Jeff. Everyone say hi, Jeff. I'm really thankful for my dad. He did this awesome thing for me, and I thought it was awesome when I was little, and I still think it's awesome, but if anyone else heard it, they'd probably go, what? So he would take me out to play critical thinking games. So when we would have daddy-son time, we would go to the park, and, or the, like, outside of my house in Oregon, there was, we called it the island, um, so it was a cul-de-sac kind of thing, and it had this island in the middle where there was a curb and trees growing. So we'd go to those places, and we, we'd do critical thinking games. Are you ready for critical thinking games? Okay, yeah, Dad, I'm ready for critical thinking games. So he would put something up in the tree and create this scenario that I'm stuck on a deserted island, and these are my resources, and I only have this much time. And if I don't get it, there's a nuclear explosion that's about to come in and wipe me out, but I have to get this thing so that I can get off the island and escape in time, and I would have to figure out how to use the resources he gave me, the sticks, the string, climb, make a rope, whatever, to solve this problem. So he'd give me problems, and it was my job to think critically and creatively to come up with a solution to the problem. Now, I am so, so incredibly thankful for that. You hear me talk about this all the time, Dad, but it's because like that changed my life. That's how I approach problems. When there's a roadblock, I think, okay, what do I need to do to figure out how to get through the problem? Like, that's my approach to life because of that. So I'm gonna give you a couple of funny examples. I sent a, I put a letter in the mailbox. I have no idea what it was, but it was a super important letter going to some governmental agency or something like that. And I put it in and I realized, shoot, I forgot the address or the stamp or something really important. And I needed, it wasn't just another letter I could write. Like, I needed the form that was in that letter. And so I was like, oh no, what am I gonna do? And it was time sensitive. And I'm thinking, oh no. So it's illegal. I probably shouldn't be telling you that I did this because I tampered. But I like I went in the house and I got string and a pencil and duct tape and I like fit it in the slot and fished and I pulled up and there was this thing attached to it. Sure enough, it was my letter and I was able to open it back up and change what I needed to and reseal it and send it. I didn't tamper with anyone else's mail, it was just my own. Never mind if you work in law enforcement and you're in the room. <laughs> but that's my approach to problems. Like, I'm going to come up with a way. We can totally do it. So I think I embarrass my wife sometimes with my critical thinking mad skills that I have. In our home, we have this mini blind that broke. Um, we have four kids, so I can't imagine why it would break. But it was on the ground, and it was sitting there, and the top bar was broken. And I'd kind of tried to fix it a few times, but it was, like, really broken now. So if you go in our house now, it's still up. And there's this amazing pencil splint I created with zebra duct tape wrapped around it. And sure enough, until we, like, take the time and the money to get it, it's not that much it's just time and money right now, which is not a big deal. But in the meantime, this is killing it at our house. There's this awesome zebra splint I made, and it totally works. So that's how I approach life. If there's a roadblock, we can overcome it. So when Allie and I got married, this is an oversimplification, but her approach, whereas mine was if there's a roadblock, we can overcome it, hers was more like, 
If there's a roadblock, oh, we can find another way. Like, we don't need to go that way. And so there'd regularly be these times where there'd be a problem, and she'd be like, let's do something else. And I'd be like, no, we can conquer it. So we had these different approaches. Here's another thing you need to know about her. She's really great at the startup phase of things. She loves to begin things. She loves to dream, get pictures for things, be creative. When it comes to the finishing phase, she would be the first to tell you it's not her strongest suit. So like, for example, when there's shampoo or conditioner in our shower, when it gets down to like this much, she's like, eh, I'm bored with that. I need a new one. I don't want to finish it. So when there's, a, when there's something that gets a little difficult, you could imagine how that could tend itself toward like, ah, we'll just do something else. We'll just figure out something else. Now, before I even go any further, I need to say, we both came together on this. She taught me how to recognize there's some problems. It's not worth conquering. It'd be way more to my advantage to just figure out another way. But there were lots of problems that were worth conquering. And I was helpful in encouraging her to believe in herself more and her capacity when circumstances were difficult to do that. Um, so our first son, Joshua, if you ever want to like work on that coming together mindsets, parenting is one of the craziest things that will do that. So. Um, we loved to go out and hang out with people before we had kids. Um, and we had this young adults group with the church here that we'd go to and lots of different things like that. And then we had Joshua. And I'm like, we can still do it. Like, we can go and he can be in his car seat and we can hold him and we can mess with his schedule and he'll be fine. And she was like, nope, we're staying at home. And so we had to like process that together a little bit and we, we came to a good place. But part of that process is learning when there's difficult circumstances, we can be creative and come up with solutions of ways to overcome it. I had another example about projects at home, but I'm gonna skip that for the sake of time. Um, but I'll just tell you, as we were going through this process together, I'll, I'm gonna get to mine in just a second. I literally like, I would have this dread in me whenever I could sense a victim mentality because I knew, I, I would think, oh no, I have to bring up the V word. I have to say, Ali, I think you're functioning from a victim mentality. And I knew like it was just gonna be a stressful, difficult conversation, but there was probably like a five year time where for both of us, we regularly had to deal with this mindset that we saw cropping up. So I already told you how with Allie, a lot of the time it had to do with like circumstances that were difficult. She had to trade her victim mentality for one of royalty. I'll explain what that means in a second. In order to realize that she, not her circumstances and not others, ultimately controlled her destiny. She had to trade her victim mentality for one of royalty in order to realize that she, not her circumstances and not others, are in control of her destiny. Okay, now let's talk about me. I got my identity and my validation for a long time from the approval of others. I was really good at being really good at a lot of things. I was really good at being really good at school. I got really high grades and getting the affirmation from my parents and from my teachers and others, even just knowing that I did really well on this. Like I got so much of my identity from that approval of what other people thought. With God, that was true. Like so much of my identity came from, am I pleasing you, God? Am I surrendered enough? Am I doing the things that you want me to do? So as a result of that, well, first let me say this. The problem with getting so much of your identity from and your validation from the approval of others, for me especially, so I have this calling on my life to push boundaries um, and to challenge the status quo and to reform things. So Satan was really smart in trying to make the getting my validation from the approval of others a thing in my life, but this process that we walked through of me learning to conquer that and not get my identity from the approval of others is essential to my destiny and my future. Um, so I demonstrated my belief in my lack or not being in control of myself whenever others weren't pleased with me. I accused Allie early on in our relationship 
of being short with me on a regular basis. Now, I gotta give you some context for this. I talked about my dad, we talked about my mom. Does anyone know my mom? She's amazing, she's awesome. Um, there's always a smile on her face and she is genuinely friendly and cares about people so much. Um, so when I was growing up, I can think of one time, I can think of times when she was not pleased with me like there were consequences, but I can think of one time when she was like mad at me about something or like disapproved of something and really came down on it. So my context was this person who just, always was like, always just encouraging me. And, and uh, you challenged me, but in different ways. When Allie and I got married and we disagreed on something and all of a sudden the sense of, I'm not approving of that decision you're making right now, or I don't agree with that. Initially, I crumbled at that because I just wasn't used to that. And I am so thankful for her because I think she had to have been so annoyed at me initially with how fragile I was in that way. And I didn't even think I was fragile in that way. I did not think that I was. But I would crumble initially at it. But over time, as God dealt with my victim mentality and I started to have confidence in who I am, I could take it and I wanted to take it. I wanted to grow. I wanted to be challenged. I appreciated the process. Um, so some, if any of you follow me on Facebook, I know you know I never post anything controversial on Facebook. Um, <laughs> So, like, initially, when I started posting some controversial things on Facebook sometimes, sometimes people would disagree with them, and that was another place where, like, initially I would just crumble, like, ugh, I know, like, I know I'm pursuing the thing that I believe in, but people aren't happy with me, people aren't pleased with me, and I would just crumble at that, and I have to go through this long process of being okay with that. So over these last five years, for me, I had to figure out how to be okay with me regardless of what anyone said about me or thought about me. I talked about how I'm sure Allie probably would have been annoyed with me at first, and I, I don't think I said this before, but I'm annoyed with me when I think about that. Maybe I did say that before. I'm annoyed with me when I think about it. And I think, why couldn't I have just been okay? Or I think maybe Allie was thinking, Andrew, why couldn't you just be okay with yourself? But I couldn't do that because I first needed God to teach me how to replace my victim mentality with a royal one in order to stand in confidence even when I don't have the approval of others because they're not in control of me, I'm in control of me. That's what a royal mentality is, recognizing I'm in control of me. My circumstances don't control me, others don't control me, I'm not lacking anything. God says I'm an overcomer, I'm powerful, and I'm free. That type of mentality changes everything. So Ali and I went through this aptitude adjustment process. We're gonna wrap all this up to tie it into here's your hack now. So when we face trials, things that are difficult, how do we rejoice in them? Here's step one. We've already established us to do with changing our thinking. Here's step one. You need to identify the victim mindset whenever you see it. That thing is a bugger. And it crops up all the time and over and over again in lots of different ways. You will never live in the destiny and the fullness and the plans that God have for you if you let the victim mentality get a hold in your mind and in your thinking. You have to be adamant at rooting that out. I need to say this before, we're gonna do a little like game of you might have a victim mentality when, and then I go through some different things. Um, but I need to start with this. James also talks about double-mindedness, people who ask for wisdom and believe but then doubt and we're double-minded. That's true with what I'm talking about, about being an overcomer and having an attitude, recognizing that you're a capable, powerful person. You can have that 
and have a victim mentality that comes up at the same time and be double-minded. So when we go through this process, don't like beat yourself up and think, oh, I just think I'm a victim all the time. We all have a victim mentality that crops up in different places. And that doesn't mean that we just totally don't believe that we're overcomers either. They exist together. But the process that James is leading us through is the process of continuing to uproot that victim mentality. So we continue to step more and more into our full identity that God sees inside of us. Okay, so you might have a victim mentality when your circumstances are more likely to affect you than you to affect them. You might have a victim mentality when your circumstances are more powerful in your life than you are powerful to affect your circumstances. You might have a victim mentality when you believe that something bigger than you controls the outcome of your life. Have any of you ever said, well, that was just God's will. We've all said it, right? <sighs> it was just God's will. That's not biblical. Like, it's not biblical to believe that everything that happens is the will of God. He's not a controller. If he were, we would lack everything. We'd have no control in our lives whatsoever. God is not a controller. We tend to have this victim mentality that there's just this thing that's bigger that ultimately controls the outcome of our lives. processing for one second if I want to, I have time and I want to talk about this next one. Um, so the way that we think about heaven and hell is really important when it comes to this. Most of us, if we think about it, think that we go through our life trying to please God trying to say the prayer to ask for forgiveness and invite him into our lives. And if we do that, if we surrender enough, at the end, he's going to control the outcome. He either sends us to hell or says yes to heaven. That He ultimately controls the outcome of our lives. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors in the world. He's amazing. And he doesn't have that view. His view is that heaven and hell are the natural results of our actions. If you look at the world, we do a great enough job of creating hell all on our own. We create hell around us. And Satan's really good at coming in and trying to mess, mess that up in the sense of bringing more hell around us as well. Hell ultimately is the outcome of a life that chooses being a victim, that chooses pain, that chooses bitterness, that chooses anger toward people. Like that is hell. And if hell is inside of you, you're gonna create hell around you. Hell isn't some punishment that God just dumps on you at the end of your life if you didn't please him. He's not a controller. That's not what he's like. Heaven is the life that comes from being set free in him, encountering freedom, encountering wholeness, becoming an overcomer, knowing this God who fights for me and loves me and says yes to me and wants me in his life. God's agenda is not to control you. His agenda is to break you free from the power and the rule of sin and death and hell so that you can triumphantly march into heaven with him. That is his agenda in your life. If you want to process that more, read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's a short, short story, short novel. It's amazing and it's beautiful. Um, and it will continue to dramatically change your perspective on that. You might be a victim when you are at the mercy of others' choices and actions. Oh, it's because of the rich people. Oh, it's because of the Democrats. Oh, it's because of the president. Oh, the immigrants in our country. Oh, if I just had a different family when I grew up, like if I just had different circumstances, 
I hadn't been bullied so much when I was young. I was bullied as a child, not horribly, horribly so, but there were painful years. So I know that that's real, but if we believe that we're mostly at the mercy of others' actions, we're partnering with the victim mentality. One more thing on that. Um, another way people can believe that they're at the mercy of others' actions is by being, making their core identity that of a servant. Jesus said he came to serve, right? But is that his core identity? Is he a servant in his core? He serves, but is that his identity? His identity is a king. His identity is he is a good God who loves to serve. That's the same for us. Jesus said he didn't consider his disciples slaves or servants any longer. He considered them friends who partner with him in serving and blessing and loving. If we view our core identity as a servant whose will and desires are just always subjected to everyone around us, we're partnering with a victim mentality rather than partnering with being the powerful and free overcomer who lacks nothing that God sees inside of us. You might be a victim partnering with a victim mindset when you think like a survivor. If your main agenda is just to pursue comfort, to avoid pain, just to get through, as opposed to running after your dreams, taking risks, pursuing your future. If your main agenda is just to avoid pain, receive comfort, and get through, that's a victim mentality, and that is not the destiny that Jesus has for you. So, um, has anyone heard of The Old Man in the Sea? Okay, it's a pretty famous uh, short novel. Ernest Hemingway is the author of it, and I read this in high school, and we had to write an essay. And I told you that I was good at school. Like, I got a lot of my identity from my grades. This is a story about a time when I did not get a good grade on something. So my teacher, his name was Mr. Harris, and he said he wanted us to read this, which we did, and then we were going to write a paper on it. And our assignment was to come up with three spiritual analogies from the book. And I came up with two easily. I don't remember. Probably something about the net and prayer. Or I don't even know. There were two analogies. It was like, easy. I was really struggling on the third. And I finally was like, okay. So he catches this fish, and the fish is on, and they're like two or three days like going back, and he, like the fish is alive, and he's going to try to get him back alive, but the sharks come, and they eat him, and he gets bloody, and by the time he gets to shore, like nothing is left of the fish other than the skeleton, and the old man's defeated in the story, and he just lays the fish up there, but he got him there. And so I wrote this like amazing analogy of how like sometimes in life, like the sharks are biting and we're bleeding and we're hanging on desperately to Jesus and everything's getting at us. But at the end of the day, he just like, he gets us there. And my teacher was like, Andrew, that is horrible theology. Like that is not what it is like. And I was so offended. My best friend who we competed on everything and I had the upper hand on grades usually, got like a full grade higher on it than me. And I was so angry about it. <laughs> um, but I'm so glad for that moment. Because I hate that I wrote that now. I go back, I had totally partnered with the survivor, the lack, the victim mentality, and thinking that that is what my journey with Jesus is supposed to be like. Yes, there are times when we're persecuted. Yes, there are times when it's hard. Yes, there are times when we struggle. But that is not the goal of my faith. That is not the purpose of my faith. That is not the outcome of my faith. That is the process sometimes. And the purpose of the process is to bring me into a place of power and freedom and overcoming. Okay, step two. So step one, identify the victim mindset whenever it comes up. Step two, change the victim mindset. Uh, sounds easier than it actually is, but it is simple in its core. The key to rejoicing in trials is to change the way that we think about ourselves from victims who are controlled 
to royalty who are in control of our own destinies, who lack nothing. I'm gonna read this again, because this is the crux right here. The key to rejoicing in trials is to change the way we think about ourselves from victims who are controlled to royalty who are in control of our own destinies, who lack nothing. If you believe that something or someone else controls you, that is the victim mindset, and that's based on lack. If you believe that you control yourself and your destiny, that is a royal mindset, and that is based on aptitude. And that is what God sees inside of you. When you have that mindset, all of a sudden, trials become incredible opportunities. Visualize a boat. So there's this boat, and there's water. We're going to think about the water as the trials, and the boat as you. When the water comes, if there's no holes in the boat, it's fine. It's easy. The boat just rides on it. If there's holes in the boat, all of a sudden the water starts coming in. That's the trial, right? So the water is the trial, but we struggle when there's holes in the boat and the water starts coming in. Usually, because we feel helpless, we just kind of struggle in that place. What's so beautiful about that and what James is talking about, this process of trials, when that happens, all of a sudden I can start identifying the holes. Oh, there's a place where I'm partnering with a view of lack. There is a place where I don't believe I'm free and in control. All of a sudden in trials, I can start seeing my victim mentality and I can start thinking with God to replace that with a way of thinking about myself that is powerful and free and lines up with someone who doesn't lack anything, which is what he sees inside of me. Does that mean I think that everything in life is just gonna be super easy and simple all the time? Of course not, we're gonna struggle. But the point of those struggles is to identify those places in our thinking that's wrong, that's trapped, so we can change it and to begin to lay hold of our destiny with Jesus. We are going from those who lack, who are victims, who are slaves, who merely survive, to becoming those who overcome, who lack nothing, who are powerful and free, who are sons, daughters, and heirs of God, who reign with Jesus, who are royalty, who know that we are in control of our lives and that we can change the world. That's how God sees you. When he looks at you, regardless of your mistakes, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you're struggling with right now, he sees the potential. He sees the overcomer. He sees the powerful free person. That is who he's rooting for. That is how he loves you. That he fights fiercely for that person inside of you. He is for you. He is advocating for that person. He relates to you in that way to pull you into that destiny. When you're going through trials, stop just trying to get through them. Stop just trying to get through them. Instead, start asking God to work out this process in your life. If you can approach trials from a place of God, show me how to be an overcomer in this. Show me where I currently lack or partner with a mindset that's lack. Help me to think like you think. That will change your life if you can approach trials and hardships from that perspective. God incredibly believes in you you need to start believing in you too. One of my favorite quotes comes from Chris Valentin. I was saved when I believed in Jesus. I was transformed when I realized that he believed in me. For far too long, the church has been waiting for God to just survive us out of here, just survive us out of this world full of hardships. God is waiting for powerful and free partners who will bring heaven to earth and claim their destiny here. Stop just trying to survive. Become the overcomer that God sees inside of you. Okay, here's our application to all of that. Say yes to the aptitude adjustment process. This is my goal for you today. Just to begin to say, I want that, God. I, I want to think like you think when you think about me. I want to see me the way you see me. Say yes to the aptitude adjustment process. 
what you believe about who you are determines everything about your life and the outcomes in your life. Are you going to partner with a victim or a royal mentality? Are you in control of your life and your destiny or not? God says you are. I mentioned Graham Cook earlier. I'm going to bring up another quote of his because I love it. Your job from now on, based on this, is to practice your new mindset. Practice it. Practice thinking like a royal person. Practice thinking like an overcomer. Practice thinking like someone who doesn't lack anything. Graham Cook says, life in the spirit is about practicing who you are. You cannot develop your identity unless three things change. First of all, your perspective of yourself needs to change. You need to agree with God. This is how God sees me, and then this is how I'm going to see myself. Your perspective needs to change. When your perspective changes, then your thinking needs to change as well. Everything you do and think is in line with that perspective. Finally, this is a big one for some of us, your language needs to change. How you talk about yourself needs to change. And I'm going to interject, how you talk about others needs to change too. Don't think of others as victims either. Perspective, thinking, and language, all those three things need to change in order for your identity to be developed. Here's how you can practice your new identity. Practice belief. Whenever you see that old victim mindset come up, whenever you think of your circumstances as bigger than you, or you think there's no way I can overcome in this circumstance, or you start thinking of yourself as I'm, I'm lacking or I'm under this thing, start taking that hat off and start putting on the royalty hat and start thinking like a person who lacks nothing. Just start simply believing that you are a person who lacks nothing like God says. Start practicing believing with God about that. Practice your attitude. Here's another Graham Cook quote. Your identity is being shaped even as we speak. Don't think any different. The circumstances of your life, don't whine about them. Don't complain about them. Moaning, whining, and complaining is the worship language of hell. Stop it. Rejoice, give thanks, and confess because worship is the language of heaven. When you whine and complain and grope, you worship the mentality that you lack and those things that are bigger than you. When you celebrate and rejoice and agree with God and choose positivity, I'm not talking about just, oh, be fluffy like it's flowers and daisies and unicorns. That's not what I'm talking about. Be really positive. Believe the word of God that there's hope, that there's incredible power, that his kingdom is coming, that there's victory coming, that there's freedom for us. Like believe those things and practice an attitude that celebrates and rejoices like you really believe that. I'm not asking you to deny hard things, but practice having an attitude that lines up with what we say we believe. Lastly, practice behavior. And this is just gonna reiterate what I just said. I would encourage you to practice things that look like rejoicing. Practice things that look like celebrating. Practice things that look like having fun. Practice things that look like praising, delighting in things. Make cupcakes and put a lot of frosting on them and eat it because it just seems crazy and fun to do. Even if you don't like it, sometimes do it and add a lot of sprinkles just to practice celebrating and rejoicing. It's good for you. Create things, enjoy, and worship. Worship deeply, not just on Sundays. Celebrating is a behavior that you can cultivate to start practice thinking like God. During the week, celebrate his goodness. Celebrate the things that he says about you. Rejoice deeply. That is how you can practice thinking with him about what he says about you and what he says about the world around you. He says that you're a royal daughter or son, lacking nothing, in control of yourself and your destiny, continuing to step more and more into that powerful and free identity. So here's what I want. I want us to be a church that rejoices and celebrates deeply 
because we agree with God about what he says about who we are. And then we get to live that out in our lives and in our community. And it's way more fun. It's way more fun to think that way than to think like a victim. So to end, um, the real application is just to practice, start thinking differently. But I am going to pray. Um, before I do that, I need to say this or else I'm going to forget. If you're part of Secret Sisters, make sure you check the table over there because there's some gifts over there. But I'm going to forget if I don't say that now. Okay, we're going to pray. Here's what I want. Um, if you, while we were talking through all of that, if you are like, I see that I have a victim mindset in different places. Here's the thing. I still have a victim mindset in different places. So like, like you all could stand and it wouldn't be weird. You definitely don't all have to stand. But if you are like, I recognize there's places where I think like someone who lacks and I don't want to think that anymore, I want you to stand up. Because I believe when we pray and ask God to show up, our partnership, that's what this whole thing is about, our partnership. Our partnership is important. So if that's you, in just a moment, I'll have you stand up. The other one is, I talked about rejoicing and celebrating at the end. If you are a person who finds it hard to have fun, who finds it hard to rejoice, if there's like sadness that just grips you and it's really hard to rejoice, I specifically want you to stand up too. So you could be standing up for either reason. If you just identify with any of those parts of the victim mentality we talked about, or if rejoicing is difficult because rejoicing and celebrating is the behavior of powerful people who are in control of themselves. And that is something God wants to break off of you so that you can celebrate and rejoice who God says you are and you can begin to live in that. So I'm going to pray. If you identify with any of those things related to the victim mentality and you're like, I want to start thinking differently, or if you identify with the rejoicing piece, go ahead and stand up and we're going to pray and ask God to do something inside of us. Yeah, Jesus. God, you are so good. The way you see us is so good. And we struggle to see ourselves the way you see us. So I just ask you to come and whatever barriers there are, whatever theologies we've developed, whatever circumstances in our life have come and caused deep pain places we've been wounded, places we've been hurt, places we've been lied to about our identity. God, would you come in and just push away the barrier of those things and open up the vulnerability of our hearts for you to come in, Holy Spirit, and start showing us what you say about who we are. For every person who's standing, God, would you come and just start speaking to them right now about what you say about who they are. That you say good when you see them. That you say yes when you see them. That there is hope that is powerful to push off darkness, to push off depression, to push off stuckness. I ask for breakthrough. Barriers that have been there for a very long time that have People have felt like, I'm never going to get past this thing. God, would you bring a special season of anointing to break through barriers that have been there for a very, very, very long time, 10, 20, 30 years. God, would you come and break through those barriers now in the name of Jesus and open up our hearts to think differently and live differently. God, for the people who just need really deep healing in their identity because they've been crushed, because they've been hurt, because they've been overpowered, would you come in gently and would you care for them? Would you put your healing oil 
on the places that need it. Heal the wounds. And then start speaking your life into them, speaking your potential that you see into them. And God, for those of us who sometimes find it hard to rejoice and to celebrate and to enjoy things, God, would you just crush that? We just say no to that in the name of Jesus. We say yes to laughter. We say yes to hope. We say yes to joy. We say yes to fun. We say yes to you. We say yes to us. We say yes to us and our future in you. I say yes to me, to Andrew, in the name of Jesus, because I am excited about my life and my future and the things that you have for me. I say yes to that in the name of Jesus. And God, would you do that in each person in here who needs that right now? I agree with you and say yes to them in your name. God, we take off our victim hats, we put on our royal hats, and we're excited to start practicing our new identity with you. Thanks for the season of working out this in our lives that we're about to go through. We love you, Jesus. Amen.